the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the potential economic benefits of Ireland co-hosting the Euro 28 football championships. You'll hear from Michael O'Keefe of advisory firm Teneo and Irish Times football correspondent Gavin Comiskey on the pros and cons of hosting games in a tournament. In the second half of the show, I'll be looking at a perceived lack of support for the tourism sector in this month's budget. Barry Halloran of the Irish Times and hotelier Elena Fitzgerald-Kane, who's also chair of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation, will join me for that segment. But first, Ireland's co-hosting of Euro 28, where Dublin and potentially Belfast will host matches in this prestigious football tournament. As with all major sports events, the key questions are around the return on public money spent to host these events and the long-term legacy from holding such a major tournament. Gavin Comiskey of the Irish Times joined me for this segment along with Michael O'Keefe, who is CEO of Teneo in Ireland, an advisory firm that includes a number of the major sports bodies here among its clients. I began by asking Michael O'Keefe to explain what will be involved in hosting Euro 28. Yes, so obviously you will will have seen that the UK and Ireland bid was successful for Euro 28. Normally in these circumstances, the financial impact or or benefit as it is comes in three parts. So first of all, you have money that's ring-fenced for the hosting association and there's a rental fee as well, I I, I understand, when it comes to the Aviva Stadium and then also a potential qualification bonus. So that is some guaranteed income but some variable. There is a a, a second piece which would have been the, the case that would have been made to government, I understand, around the potential of inbound spend, travelling fans, how much money they spend. We've seen varying reports on that. Give Um, us the numbers. Well, it it really depends. So I've not been smart when I say that, but, you know, if you get, like we had in 2011, I think we had a Europa final here, big expectation of big inbound crowd. We ended up with two Portuguese teams in the final. Didn't quite have the impact that we thought. Um, I think it depends what fans come. You look look at the US College Classic as well, Notre Dame come to town. The Department of Tourism has has, has war-gained this, hasn't it? So what's it saying in terms of the cost and the economic benefit? So there is a cost associated with this. um, And I think the cost all in is something like 30 million. It could could rise to more than that. There will be upgrades needed. There is obviously security, all that kind of stuff that needs to go to hosting. Um, That's my understanding anyway. And then when it comes to inbound spend, I think that does vary. But, you know, I would imagine that if we have six games here, a lot of them will involve Ireland, hopefully, maybe not, but that you will have tens of millions of of euros spent here with inbound supporters coming to town. Hopefully get a couple of big teams coming. And then last piece is the one that um, is the intangible, I think, sometimes is the the, um, legacy impact. And does this inspire kids to play football? Does it inspire sea change in Irish football or not? We've seen varying examples of success or otherwise and not obviously London 2012 Olympics you would have seen the Sydney Olympics and Barcelona, those kind of things had massive impacts on those cities and they'll put those, some of those cities on the map. It's very hard to tell sometimes how much these events are impacting, um, but you would like to think that more kids would be inspired to play who go to see these matches. You would think it should be a benefit for Irish football long term, depending on how the FAI um, utilises its, its, its success. Gavin, actually, some numbers that I've seen reported suggest that the cost could run to between 65 and 93 million euro and that the the benefit could be in terms of gross added value 189 million euro and this apparently has been questioned by Pascal Dunahu the Minister for Public Expenditure who I I think his argument is that these games will be hosted in July which is uh, a peak tourism season in Ireland anyway hotels would probably be full or nearly full and there's we will simply be displacing those tourists with football fans Yeah 
uh, I'd point the listeners to Jack Horgan Jones's exclusive piece back in April when he, Pascal Dunhu, sent around a memo effectively to other ministers about this information. And those, the, the worry is, will those tourists come back if they can't come in June, July? And, well, the, the concern is that they won't, you know? So that's that eats into the, this is going to be a brilliant event for tourism, for bars, hotels, pubs, which are full to the limit in July anyway. Yeah. And obviously it's going to be Dublin-centric because all the games are going to be in the Republic are going to be hosted in, in Dublin, in the Aviva. Yeah, all the games on, on the island are probably going to be in Dublin unless there's a, the miracle of Casement Park gets finished. But um, yeah, it'll be Dublin-centric, it'll be Dublin City and it'll be in and out to the Aviva. Crow Park was in the running, obviously, initially. Mm. It was long-listed and that's gone now. And that's not going to come back in because UEFA, besides London, who has Tottenham Hotspur's ground and Wembley, has said one city, one ground. That's so. The Welsh get Cardiff... The Scots get Hamden Park. So, yeah, the um, the benefits are... I don't think the benefits are going to be financial, to be honest. I think the benefits are going to be... Um, I, I heard Gavin Bazunu and Evan Ferguson talking about this when it was announced, and these are it's a 21-year-old Ireland national and an 18-year-old Ireland international. And they're... what they will be nearing their peak of their powers when this comes along and we're going to make it really easy for Ireland to qualify for this tournament. So they they believe that the impact they can have on people... Again, it goes back to what's the impact that Italy 90 and Euro 88 had on me when I was 10 years old, you know what I mean? It was massive, but say, you know, and it did and it inspires you to go play football. That's the main... That I think that'll be the main legacy and that's not something that's created. That's something that just happens from having the tournament here, you know. Sure. I, 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 think, I think I think Pascal's point, sorry, was that the revenue that's been projected is it all new, or is some of it cannibalising some that might well, already exactly, have been yeah, there? It's just simply <laughs> displacing uh, tourism. But I mean, the legacy. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying about uh, eighty-eight and, and ninety, um, but that was in effect in Ireland. Uh, I, I don't know what the legacy was in in Italy. We're 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 going to be a co- well, we're certainly going to host. There's not even a guarantee that we're going to be playing in the tournament. No, I suppose I should take you through the qualification process. Uh, again, UEFA haven't confirmed this yet. Uh, Jonathan Hill, when he was pressed on it uh, a couple of months ago... The FAI said, Chief Executive, yeah. FAI Chief Executive Jonathan Hill, when pressed on it a couple of months ago, said um, all five all five co-hosts, the UK and Ireland, will have to qualify, he believes, with two spots left over for... So, let's look at it the way it is now. If Euro 2024 is an indication, England have qualified last night with a brilliant performance against Italy, wiped them out at Wembley. Uh, Scotland have qualified as well. Really good team full of Premier League players. Wales and Croatia are in a bit of a, uh, a battle now to, to get the third spot. That would leave Northern Ireland, who are an atrocious team, who are nowhere near the standard to be in a major tournament, would get in. And Ireland, again, nowhere near the standard to be at a major tournament, would get in because two spots will be left over for co-hosts. But, but what actually five years down the road, so yeah. who knows how Scotland Yeah, but what easily Wales. could happen is, let's say Wales don't look like they're like Wales and Croatia, it is a bit of a 50-50 to see who qualifies yeah. from them. That spot would then be held over for them and Ireland, Republic of Ireland would get in, Northern Ireland would miss out. So that's that's the way it could easily fall in 2028. It could even get worse, like Scotland could or Wales both could get terrible groups and the slot might have to be left for them because the highest ranking teams in either hasn't been decided, either the UEFA or FIFA rankings will get in. So if England don't qualify, they'll get in. Ireland are fourth and I can't see us becoming passing out Scotland or Wales in the next five years. Okay, so let's say we it's let's tricky. say we we'll probably get it though, yeah. But let's it's say yeah, let's say let's say we make it. We're one of the teams uh, lining up in that tournament. We haven't been playing very well, Gavin, and this is an understatement, I think, for uh, under Stephen Kenny. Um, we know about the what is it six uh, competitive wins in twenty eight matches. Um, now yeah, you, you talked about Bazunu and Ferguson. Ho- hopefully, their careers are going to blossom and uh, things will improve, but they may not. 
And so we could end up with a situation similar to 2012 when we went to the Euros under Giovanni Trapattoni. We lost our three group games. I don't think there was much of a, a legacy or a spin-off from that tournament for, uh, for and, Irish football. And I don't think we're going to be seeded. There's two ways of looking at this. The positive is we're going to have two powerhouse nations coming to Dublin to play group matches against us. Mm. And the negative is we're going to have two powerhouse nations coming to Dublin to play group matches against us. So, you know, we could get a Germany and a Spain, conceivably, which is 2012, which is set up to be 2012. I think the FA are going to make a managerial change next month. Um, there's a lot of talk about Lee Carsley coming in. The, these things can change quite quickly, you know what I mean? There is a team developing. The best example I can give you is Greece are a team that, that wiped us out over two matches in the qualification campaign that Stephen Kenny, the current manager, targeted as teams teams we can beat. We weren't we weren't at their level. That's a team in their late twenties. So by the time Euro twenty twenty eight runs turns around, the Nathan Collinses, the Evan Fer- Evan Ferguson will be twenty three, but still probably flying at that stage. Um, Nathan Collins will be twenty seven, Bazunu twenty six. They'll be all in that sweet spot age where professional footballers, and there'll be a group of them because so many have come in now in the last two years who are teenagers or early twenties. So if we get the right management in place, we get the right coaches in place, this can turn around. I don't think it can turn around to get to the 2026 World Cup, but it can turn around in time for Euro 2028 where we're competitive. I'm not talking about getting out of the group. I'm talking about being competitive against the best countries in the world. Mick, uh, Gavin mentioned that Dublin could well be the only venue that actually hosts games on the island um, yeah. when this tournament comes around. Um, just talk us through that because Caseman Park has been earmarked uh, as, as one of the host venues that's in yeah. West Belfast, but it's currently derelict, has been for yeah. a number of years now. Yeah. It's waiting for awaiting redevelopment, but there's been a lot of controversy around funding and planning. Yeah, yeah well, Caseman was put in as the... Um as a nominated venue in Belfast, um, it isn't built. So obviously there remains a question mark over that, but there is commitment to make it happen. I think the GA, Irish government, um, British government as well, are looking to fund that, but it's a, it's a significant check to write. Um, but there, that's the number one plan at the moment. I'm not sure what plan B is if it doesn't happen. Um, originally, the Maze site was one that was proposed a number of years ago uh, as a multi-purpose sports venue in Belfast that didn't go ahead. Windsor Park looks too small as it stands and not with scope to develop. So it's kind of all eggs in with casement. I think time is of the essence here. By the time they get it get it approved, get the financials right and get the planning done, that's going to have to happen in the next six to, six to 12 months, I'd imagine. If it doesn't happen in the next six to 12 months, well then I think they need to get into contingency planning, whatever that might look like. I actually can follow up on that because I asked the IFA last week what is plan B if Caseman doesn't get over the line and there's, there's huge resistance on multiple levels um, starting with the Northern Ireland soccer supporters uh, expressing concern about having to go to matches in West <coughs> Belfast the Unionist Party especially the DUP so I said look w- what is the plan B if you can't get Caseman over the line to make sure the Euros comes to Belfast and they had no answer they referred me to government they couldn't even tell me what department I should be asking the question of Michael Neal the Northern Ireland manager has been strongly trying to press it because like at the most recent Northern Ireland games, they're booing the idea of Caseman Park. You know what I mean? The fans are, are expressing their view. Um, they need. It was initially seventy million to get this done, and the GA said they'll put in fifteen million. Now Leo Varadkar has spoken in the last couple of weeks about putting in money from the Irish government from the shared Ireland fund, which has five hundred million kitty. But um, it it looks like the estimates now are up to one hundred and sixty <laughs> million to get this done um, to build a thirty four thousand five hundred seater stadium that will have five matches during the Euros, one knockout and probably four group games. And then it becomes a GA ground. Then it, it, the value of it goes to the Ulster sure, Football Championship. 
Yeah, that's it. That's where it goes. And look, it'll become a really beneficial thing. But Windsor Park will keep holding uh, soccer up the north, and Ravenhill will keep holding the rugby. Neither of them are anywhere near the UEFA cutoff of thirty thousand capacity. So this, there is no legacy to this for football in the north of Ireland, and that that's where the resistance will really, when the money has to be divvied out, that's where the resistance will come. And sitting there now, if you made me make a decision on this, I said they'll either go back to nine stadiums, Belfast will lose out, or Sunderland Stadium of Light is next up on the list, I believe. Right. Mick, some people listening to this might think, well, hold on, weren't we supposed to host the Euros before? Euro 2020, we were supposed to yeah. host, I can't remember, was it five or six games? Um, as part of a multi-city yeah. hosting of the tournament, it was Michelle Platini's uh, big idea to mark an anniversary uh, of the tournament. Then COVID got in the way, uh, obviously. But Daily Mount Park, I seem to recall John Delaney saying that the redevelopment of Daily Mount Park, which was under threat, uh, prior to that, yeah, uh, it was going to be demolished for housing. I think uh, that the redevelopment of Daly Mount Park would be a legacy of Euro twenty twenty. Uh, anybody who follows the League of Ireland will know that uh, nothing has changed uh, at Daly Mount Park; still waiting to be redeveloped. There is it a got plan. planning permission this last week. Yeah, sure, <laughs> there is a plan, but it hasn't been uh, redeveloped, and here we are in twenty twenty three. So it comes back to the legacy uh, point again. Those Euro matches twenty twenty never happened. Yeah. Well, they would, if there's anything that was more pre-COVID than that plan of having people travelling around 11, 12 cities, I think it was probably the Euro 2020 plan. It just didn't work for us from a feasibility perspective and it was scrapped. Um, you also bear in mind that we did put in a, a pretty good bid for the host the World Cup that's on right now in the Rugby World Cup in 2023. But I do think some of the questions you're asking are, like we're in kind of uncharted territory here with the scale of this competition that we're looking to host. Um it's very difficult to say exactly what the legacy is going to be. It's very difficult to say, can we can we deliver the infrastructure and the, until such a time as we're put in that position? Um, I do believe, uh, as a sports fan and someone who works in the sports business, that you know, promoting sport in Ireland is a multifaceted thing, right? It's it's about encouraging kids to play. It's about high performance and creating elite players and athletes and all that kind of good stuff. It is about facilities that you've mentioned a number of times. But it is also about major events and major events does fall into that. And I, I, I think we are potentially entering into a very exciting time for Irish sport where you have a Ryder Cup of which is going to cost us tens of millions to host. It's going to happen on these shores, um, which I think with a lot of general public and sporting public support, we're going to have a Walker Cup um, you know, they won't have the Open as it is or the British Open, whatever you want to call it, in Port Rush and potentially in somewhere like Port Marnican in the next 10 years as well. So Ireland is a destination for big time sport. We might have an NFL game here in the next four or five years. You know, I would like to think that this country and we all grew up, um, well, united anyway, Kieran, um, in the same era of there wasn't a lot of big sport in this country. We watched English soccer. There was a six na or the five nations as it was at the time. Um, and, you know, there, there wasn't really much else. Um, we don't have a lot of big time sport in this country. So, you know, the Leinster rugby's have come along, which is great. You can watch professional sport. You've a rapidly improving League of Ireland, which is which is great. We obviously have our own GA and, and, and indigenous games, but I for one uh, have an appetite for seeing big time sport, whether it's boxing or American football or um and I would welcome the fact that there's a vision, um albeit some of it looks a little bit kind of there's uncertainty around some of the aspects of it. I, I think it's a positive thing. Um, and, you know, we'll only be able to measure the success of this or otherwise post the event. Can I add, add to that? Like there is, again, one positive from it is UEFA will will fund the doing up of the Aviva Stadium to bring it up to scratch by 2028. And I, I've travelled around the world for the last uh, 10, 15 years and the Aviva Stadium, which was completed in 20, 2008, 2009, is nowhere near the standard of every other stadium I go to. So like they cut a lot of corners when they were putting that shiny 
stadium in Dublin Fort together back 15 years What's ago. What's missing? Oh, there's plenty of things. Just even elevators, uh, food, uh, just the actual fan experience. It's um, There's like little narrow, narrow corners when you're trying to get around to toilets and stuff like this. There's loads of little things that you just don't experience access to they press were boxes. They were constrained, of course, on the site, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. they were. But so this is, every city manages to get it done except us is... You know, I feel like you know when you get to an airport in another city, you are always like, "Why can't Dublin be like this?" That's okay, what. That's I mean, what. I, but so the Aviva will get. You were at the Gibraltar br- match the other night, right? I was, yeah, in Faro. That was a venue that was part of the Euro two thousand four, wasn't mm. it? When Portugal yeah. um, hosted, and what's happened to that venue since? Uh, Gibraltar played their home matches there. Well, they're putting a hundred million into a stadium to fix an eight thousand, nine thousand seater stadium, which I bet will be finished before the seventy million is found for Daly Mount Park. Um. Portugal played there in odd time. Yeah. They spread it around. Uh, I don't think it has a home club. Division uh, Division 4 it was, I understand, um, that the, the local Division 1 team from the Algarve was going to move their games there, but it actually was too big for them and they didn't want to. So it became a little bit of a white elephant and, it, as you say, Portugal played the odd match It's there. a white elephant, but I've been there twice it's in the yeah, last two yeah, years yeah, with Portugal and we Gibraltar. We keep getting Gibraltar. <laughs> yeah. So Portugal, we played Portugal there, I think, yeah, um, that's not, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so it, it didn't become what it, it was intended to become. And then again, you look at other venues, you look at Sydney, some of the stuff that they built, or you look at um, London, uh, the Olympic Stadium, and there's legacy uh, upside in some of the stuff that was built. Um, and also, I think in Portugal in t- 2004, they basically redeveloped the country as well. There's motorways were built, there was rail connections built, the cities were... We're in, not going to do that. We, we won't do that here because we're, we're not hosting on our own. Um, uh, but I, I sorry, just to put another point that you made earlier on about Dublin being the only uh, benefactor of of hosting. Um, I don't necessarily think that's exactly right. I, I think obviously there would be a big focus on Dublin people come for a couple of days, but we have seen when people book their travel um, for other sports, rugby and American football, and other, that they do tend to travel around the country and take it as an opportunity to see other things. So I'm not sure that's exactly the way it's going to end up. Yeah, but it's going to be in the heights of summer, so people coming here, American tourists coming here will probably do that anyway. Yeah, and the football fan comes here, they're leaving to go see their team play in another yeah. English city. Look, we pressed, uh, one of the things that reporters wanted to find out was what is the, le- the legacy for domestic football in Ireland? And the figure that's been put out is 6.2 million. Mm. Um, Where does that come from? That comes from UEFA yeah. from a pot they've put aside. That goes. They're saying that goes to League of Ireland. Um, in what it, way? In what? Would, they haven't been explained that. Uh, and every figure that they come with, we go explain in detail what the lasting legacy is. Explain in detail what the plan is. And they haven't given us that. Um, there is a white paper coming from the, the FEI director of football, Mark Canham, in December, where he's going to lay out the next the ten year plan for Irish football. We are so far behind every other European nation. We're not a second tier nation in terms of finances, facilities, and all that. Mark Canham, who comes from hired by Jonathan Hill, both Englishmen who come from the English FA and worked as an academy director in the Premier League, he's going to come over, and he's he's been over here for a year now. Forty one year old, met him a couple of times. Very smart. He's going to come in and produce a paper that gives a 10-year plan for how we basically play our pathways for how we... Because players are, Irish players are not getting into the Premier League anymore. There's seven playing Premier League football this year. He's going to give a plan for how we... We can't afford to build proper academies in our League of Ireland clubs without government support. The government money is not coming at the moment. So he's going to explain how... Take Mason Melia, 16-year-old at St. Pat's, uh, will probably end up at a high league in Europe or England. He's going to explain how we make sure he has the strength and conditioning to be ready to go when he's 18 to leave this country. He's playing in Pat's first team, you know. So Mark Canham is going to come out with this big plan and I don't understand. He needs to explain how Euro 2028 is going to help 
the future of Irish football that he's going to release a big plan in December. And Leo Vracker's already said in the door, these are, these are separate things. These are separate funding mechanisms for these two things. And that's... That is not what anyone in Irish football wants to hear. Yeah. But it's also... Course, but it's it shouldn't, all, yeah. it shouldn't all be about the League of Ireland either, should it? I mean, grassroots football has been doing a lot of the heavy lifting in Irish in Irish football for many years, you know. So, you know, the Stella Maris, the St. Kevin's, the clubs all around the uh, and, 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 country. And, and, and the exponential growth in the women's game as well. Like, I think, you know, these are all, all linked. They're all different streams, but they're all linked. Like, the FEI did come out with the facilities ask as well which is in the hundreds of millions which I think reflects the years of, of, of under investment in, yeah, 800 in, million in, 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 years, in facilities yeah. the, the Mark Cannon report as, as, as such will look at how a young boy or girl interacts with sport from the age of five all the way through to elite hopefully and, and, and others who just take part in, in, in football but if you think about it the facilities and building academies is linked to the player development you know um, more pitches more 4G pitches all that kind of stuff is all facilities are linked to pathways you know mm. maybe the success of the national team is linked to participation you know a legacy impact of this tournament increases participation which hopefully generates income that we can put into facilities which so it's all part of the, I think you, you can separate them out but they're all part of the same part, part of the same conversation I think the Mark Cannon report will be really really interesting because again no one has put thought into this because back in the day what happened was and I was in that system, was you played for an elite schoolboy club, you got to 15, 16, you represented your country and you went over to England as it was and you tried to make a career you for yourself. And our best players were trained by English clubs and coaches. You can't do that anymore. So overemphasis now on, on League of Ireland clubs, some of them are well equipped to do it, some, some of them aren't. So how do we make sure that those 16, 17, 18 year olds are improving to a point that we're producing elite international world class players and educating them as well that's and, something we're not doing properly Shamrock Rovers yeah. are doing with private funding uh, yeah. absolutely and, and, and also ed educating these these people so that when they get to 17, 18 they're equipped to be professional athletes and also have been educated uh, and can move to a different league if they want or have a have a good career in an improved league and they're, and they're ready for the rigours of it because most of them will not get where they want to go and they're ready and they're equipped for the, the mental uh, problems that, will, that inevitably come to it for a teenager who gets to a certain level and is told no you're not yeah. good enough but I mean, a lot of this is kind of a bit pie in the sky, if I can say that. I've been following League of Ireland, you know, all my life. Um, and you look at the performances this season in Europe, terrible. Yeah. Absolutely Shocking. terrible. I'm a Shamrock Rovers fan and, you know, proud of the club and the uh, the strides it has made over the last uh, decade or so and putting in place the academy and uh, the education and all that. And it's produced Gavin Bazunu and a few others, um, Liam Scales and, and so on. But Rovers is a million miles behind uh, a lot of continental European clubs and not even tier one country clubs. I mean, James McLean was making the point and he's absolutely right that the facilities that Wrexham have and Wrexham uh, only a few months ago was a national league, a non-league uh, club in the English uh, system. It's now tier four uh, within the professional uh, game that they have better facilities, better academy, better training facilities, uh, etc. than any League of Ireland club. Yeah, but I think that's because like, you know, if you're if you're a company or a football club with a eight to ten million turnover, you know, and you're comparing yourself to a Malmo or somebody else who turns over twenty, thirty million, like that's a huge gap, you know. Um, and a lot of that is you take a Wrexham, a lot of that's TV money that comes into that comes into lower league, even English clubs that just doesn't exist in this market. So, you know, I I, I do think there has but been twenty eight isn't going to solve that. No, but I don't think I don't think I I don't think that's the claim either. I I I I think. There's a long journey needed in um, to improve player development, the academies, the facilities, and the standards 
in the, in the League of Ireland that I think to be fair has started I think it's better than it was mm. um, it has a it has a it has a road to go but it needs hundreds of millions like and them. the Canon plan Mickey, is again I'll go back to take Mason Melia 16 year old uh, high quality future international potential um, Pats can kind of pick up half the kind of training and exposure and coaching he'd get at a League One third tier English club so it's up to the FAI now plan to go in and go okay here's our guy we're going to make sure he gets education he gets they're only going to pick one or two of these players per club because they can't afford it otherwise you know what I mean and they're going to pick these guys and they're going to try and mould them with more underage internationals with more specific training for these guys like specific coaching in the central hub in a central hub but without having a central academy because they can't afford it without having a, a national centre because it costs 47 million they can't afford it because they're 43 million in debt so every time I say something about they're trying to do it I don't I can't tell you how they're going to fund it because they haven't told us I think division is one thing but having the money to do it is another you know and you know when, look when it comes to facilities just for, for, for what it's worth you know you have a massive pinch point in cities and towns around Ireland around pitches for kids for participation you have the phenomenal growth and the welcome growth of, of, of women's sport in this country too you can't get a pitch in Dublin on a Tuesday night and you can't get a pitch on the weekend because they're just they're just not there mm. and like I, I actually would give the FAI some credit that they put their ask out there to start a conversation on this the GEA have been past masters of unlocking funds for development and fair play and the IRFU have done some really good work as well but why wouldn't we get to a place where you go to like in Italy or a Turkey where you have municipal community facilities funded by government that are for everybody why don't we have four Astros that are available to all the clubs whether you're a soccer club athletics club or rugby club because there's never been a political will Mick well, there is a little bit more it's because, now in 20 it's because years everyone's right been going doing, and it's because the way the pots of money are set up that you apply for the grant and the best grant appliers get the grants and the rugby and the GAA clubs have been smarter than everyone and, you have, and sometimes yeah. it helps to own your land as well and a lot of football clubs don't own their land um, no they don't no I mean you know. so, so, but for me I think the vision should be a massive commun- community stadia, community facilities. You take your Belfast conversation from earlier. You know why does it have to be a GA versus a soccer stadium? Like what you know, division should have been for a state of the art 40,000 seater stadium in Belfast in that should have accommodated all yeah, the sports. Right. No, that, that is happening to a degree. There's a a, a multi-purpose sports facility in Fairview, um, yeah, yeah, near where you are. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've refereed soccer matches out there, and uh, went to do a soccer match one day and. Uh, Anthony Daly was coming off a training session with the Dublin Hurlers yeah. at the time so that's how far back it is but no, that, and that, so that and is happening around the place that, that Dublin City Council tends to paddle its own canoe yeah it, do, it does and and you know um, a, a lot of rugby clubs have, have pretty good facilities as well and they use schools and other things too that Dublin City Council facility that you speak about Belvedere Soccer Club are in there you know Clontarf GA Club get a runner that every now and then the Dublin Hurlers train there every now and then you know it's, o- it's open Sheriff Street come out and play ma- like it's open to everybody and rightfully so uh, and that to me should be if we're looking at community based facilities I think that's the, that should be the model going forward not necessarily the GA need more pitches because of integration or football need more of this of course there's a League of Ireland which is a slightly different conversation but I think at community level it should be much more facilities for everybody the FAI right. expressed disappointment at um, the negative reaction in Ireland to co-hosts in the Euro 2028 bid but I think this conversation shows them that every time we try to be positive about it, all the realities has come streaming back in. Yeah, you know? plus, I mean, football fans remember the fact that we went with Scotland uh, with a Euro bid and, uh, yeah. you know, we were embarrassed uh, by it in the end. We had Euro 2020 when we were confirmed as a host. It never happened. Uh, so there's been a lot of false dawns for... And this started out as a bid for the World Cup for 2030. 
if uh, memory serves. Yeah, me. and then but anyway, uh, tactically was it? Yeah, but look, uh, yeah, like you, you have to, surely you have to have vision. Like, like people aren't giving out about the Ryder Cup happening in a, in a dare. I think it's fantastic. You it know, it's fantastic. But what's the legacy of the 2006 Ryder Cup that happened in the K Club? Um, are more people playing golf? Is Ireland a golfing tourism destination? No, well, I, 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 participation numbers for golf are very small. It's an elite. Well, you know, it's a sport. Well, it's it's it's, it's, it's a, to be fair. It's, it, to be fair, it's it's a growing sport, and I think when when the government look at golf, it's quite a clear cut decision. They look at golf to see does it put Ireland uh, on the map as a destination for for tourism, and it tends to be higher end tourism as well. Absolutely, and and so I and I think it does. Why, I think it, I think it does. Cup, yeah. That's why the Ryder Cup maybe works but let's not fool ourselves the Ryder Cup is a one week event and then that's it it's over it's gone and uh, forget about it um, final words to Gavin just on the Stephen Kenny um, it looks like he's it looks like he's gone as, as Ireland manager after the next uh, uh, international window in November yeah it's been a tough few months his press conferences have been very difficult for the last while because there's a, there is still some goodwill towards him but uh, he pretty much uh, confirmed after the Beating Gibraltar four 0 on Monday night, that uh, he's going to have. There's going to be consequences for losing to Greece, especially losing to Greece in such a such a terrible performance last Friday night at home. Um, he's aware of that. Uh, I don't. I, I'm there to be exchanging this, but he's never quit a job. I don't. I don't believe so. He's going to go and coach Ireland at the at Johan Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam. Then there's going to be a final game against New Zealand. It'll be very interesting to see what kind of crowd turns up to the. Aviva Stadium for that match at the end of November and then the FA Mark Cannon will make a presentation of a review of the campaign as he did before Vera Powell's contract was allowed to run out to the FAI board at the end of November and um, then if it looks like he's gone looks like the management will be gone and then the switch again goes to what happens next there won't so be, what happens next? If Ireland don't get into a playoff which is looking increasingly unlikely and it requires results from elsewhere we the Republic of Ireland senior men's team won't have a competitive match for 10 months until the Nations League kicks back in September 2024. Now, we talk about finances. That's a real, that's hugely damaging. Like, we're going to be hat in hand looking for teams to come here for friendlies before the Euros, you know. So, the, the next person who comes in, Lee Carsey's name has been mentioned, the England under-21 coach who has 39 caps for Ireland. His name has been mentioned as the kind of person who can come in and is prepared and equipped to, to manage an international team to some level of success. I think all of our expectations have dropped quite spectacularly because of the results under Kenny. But um, a manager needs to come in who's actually ready for this job and who's able to kind of grind out results and not just play lateral keep ball. So that's what's coming. OK, let's see how it plays out. Gavin Comiskey and Michael O'Keefe, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. I'll be back in a few moments with a segment on a perceived lack of support for the tourism industry in the recent budget. Back in a few moments. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Earlier this week, the Irish Times revealed that the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation had written to Tourism Minister Catherine Martin seeking an urgent meeting for what it sees as a lack of support for the industry in the recent budget. Barry Halloran of the Irish Times covered this story, and I'm also joined for this segment by Elena fitzgerald Kane, a hotelier here, who is also chair of ITIC. Here we go. Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. You were writing earlier this week about 
One of the leading bodies in the Irish tourism sector, writing to Minister for Tourism, Catherine Martin, expressing their disappointment that there wasn't more supports in the budget for the tourism industry. Explain to us the backdrop to that. Okay, well, the, the Irish Tourism Industry Council, which is really the, 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 the sector's premier um, lobbying group and the one that does the sort of most muscular and, and deepest research, um, is seeking a meeting with the minister because uh, the organisation is arguing, and I would say with some justification, that um, go, that tourism has slipped down the uh, list of government priorities. Um, I, they are primarily concerned with the fact that there's a, uh, there's a sort of classic Irish complacency creeping into all of this because airport figures are good and hotel occupancy is good. But those figures actually, the airport figures are mostly the likes of you and me heading off on our holidays rather than staying here. And, and it's, that's obviously not tourists coming in. And the occupancy figures are down to our humanitarian commitments, uh, you know, which unfortunately continue to be very, very necessary. Um, so something like 20% of the bedrooms across yeah. the country are being taken up by Ukrainians or other refugees, asylum seekers, etc. Yeah, that's it. Now, alongside that... Um, government actually reduced its allocation to tourism this year. And it's it's pretty interesting. The, the, the total amount that the industry will get from uh, government in 2024 will be 216 million versus 231 million this year. And that is, of the, the five spending heads in, in the department, um, it's one of two that have had their allocation reduced Arts, Gwaeltuk and Sport have all had fairly decent bumps to their allocations, 3, 4 and 5%. But tourism, which is a big employer, there's more than 40,000 businesses. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure Elena can, can give you a lot of detail on that. But that um, is actually seeing its budget cut. Now against, the ITIC points out in its letter that against a background where you've also got inflation, that, that means effectively that bodies like um, Tourism Ireland and Fault Ireland will actually have to cut their budgets. And they're obviously the organisations charged with selling this country as a tourist destination to holidaymakers abroad. Um, alongside that, the ITIC has also had a, released a, 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 a strategic plan for the industry up to 2030. Um, and that now appears to have been more or less completely ignored by government. Yeah, OK, well, let's bring Elena Fitzgerald-Kane in here at this point. She's chair of the Irish Tourism Industry Confederation and also a hotelier. Elena, what's, what exactly is going on? Um, why, in you know, the words of Itik, was, uh, was tourism ignored in the budget? It's probably the craziest set of circumstances in, in so many respects. Um, I suppose if we look at tourism as a broad entity, we're Ireland's largest Indigenous sector. We account for 13% of all livelihoods across the country. Now, that's a fairly big statistic, and it's actually more than all of the livelihoods that are supported by agriculture and all of the livelihoods that are supported by construction. And by contrast, it's just shy of where the amount of um, livelihoods that are in FDI. I suppose what's particularly interesting about tourism is 70% of those jobs are outside of Dublin. So the regional impact is huge, often in many communities. It's the only show in town and everything else spins off it, even to a point that there's a, a recent um, Fault Ireland statistics that shows that for every euro spent in accommodation, that ends up in two euros 15 ancillary revenue. So that's everything from your local restaurant, pubs, shops, etc. So the impact, I suppose, of tourism 
is pretty profound. And I suppose at an enterprise level, you're looking at 46,000 enterprises feeding into it. You're looking at an overall annual revenue of 9 billion, of which two comes from Ireland domestically, the 7 billion obviously coming from overseas, and annual exchequer returns, you know, that are in the region of, of uh, 2 million. So a really important part of, I suppose, the economic picture of Ireland um, and certainly, you know, as as a regional um I suppose, sector, it, it, it's hugely important. OK, and if you think of it in the context of the government, like your your figures say it all, you know, um, the end, I suppose, inevitably, the spend that has been allocated for tourism is shy of what it was last year and doesn't take into consideration inflation. And I suppose the reality is and, and what's running alongside all of these decisions is we had an increase in VAT and the increases to the consumer, but ultimately affects our competitiveness. You know, we're in a time of serious global uncertainty, um, you know, it facing into the winter and all that goes with it. Um, but the reality is for a long time now, ITIC has been saying that tourism recovery isn't expected until 2026. So why would you, in, in all honesty, be increasing VAT in, you know, in in against the backdrop of recovery not being expected in 2026 and equally in the same breath, reducing the funding. Yeah, I think, Elena, on that point, the government would argue that um, or the accusation has been made in political circles that there was a lot of price gouging going on in hotels. And we had a situation where Taylor Swift concerts were being, tickets were uh, becoming available there a couple of months back and people were making bookings with hotels and then suddenly they they discovered that those uh, bookings had been cancelled on them, uh, etc. So they were facing much higher charges. So, I mean, the, the industry hasn't done itself any favours in that respect, does it? Yeah, but should should everybody pay for the sins of a few? Like, that's the reality of it. I have to say it hurts when I hear of price gouging or things that don't represent value for money. As a regional and family hotelier, I'm really, really conscious of that. And and our messaging in ITIC is always around value, you know, building the experience, etc. Um, interestingly, I suppose, if you look at the actual statistics that are compiled, so if you take STR statistics, which would be, I suppose, they're the monitor worldwide independently produced numbers like they show I suppose just taken July which is the last set of data that I have you know Dublin had an increase um, I suppose vis-a-vis the previous year of 10.8 percent but interesting if you look at Edinburgh it was 13 percent Amsterdam 16 percent Rome 22 percent so there is an upward slide and I suppose that has been fueled in some respects because of the increasing costs there is still no excuse for price gouging um, but if you if you take into consideration the fact that it's a small number of rooms vis-a-vis all the rooms potentially in Dublin, vis-a-vis across the country, now look beyond, I suppose, the whole hotel piece, look at all the other types of tourism accommodation and then look at tourism as a broader entity. It makes no sense that a sector that is lagging behind all others in terms of recovery is been penalised, you know, potentially for the sins of a few. Now, we'd rather that there wasn't a few. We would like to see that our value message, you know, I suppose, is valued as much, if you were to use the term, here domestically as it is overseas. But it's a difficulty. And the VAT hike has made things more difficult, particularly as you head into the winter. You are going to see prices going up in line with that because there's no way of absorbing those costs in the current environment. So the whole piece is like we're lagging as a sector in terms of employment restoration. We're not at pre-pandemic levels. There is a perception that everything is quite buoyant. You know, everybody talks about how there's over 100% of what flights there were in 2019. Nobody's talking about the fact that a significant shift has occurred in the outbound piece. So, yes, the airports are busier, 
But a, a bigger piece of that is going overseas. And the reality is we are not seeing as many tourists as we need in this country. Um, and that is is being reflected, I suppose, in, in the, the industry. If you were to do a pulse check, yes, some people are doing well. But the reality is that the full sector isn't expected to cover until 2026. And then take the VAT and take the decrease in budget. So, yeah, we do feel that 13 percent of all livelihoods in Ireland are not being taken seriously. Yeah. Elena, I'm sure ITIC lobbied the government hard before the budget. And I'm sure the other tourism bodies, and there's many of them, uh, did the same as well. So wh- why didn't the government listen? I think there's maybe a sense that tourism was looked after, you know, during the COVID times. And in fairness, hats off to government. The supports that they put in place were existential. And there would be no tourism sector for the people of Ireland to enjoy or anybody else. And all, you know, the economic and other social prosperity that goes with it, was it not for the efforts of government? I mean, it it was incredible how government, you know, I suppose, recognising the dire circumstances that the tourism community found themselves in. And I suppose you have to think about it as well in the aftermath of the last recession, whilst that's not comparable to COVID, like the tourism sector was the number one creator stroke generator of jobs during that period. So we have a potential as a community and particularly the regional piece to really, really grow. But it's like as if, you know, whether it was a combination of, well, look, you've been looked after already. Then there's a perception that the sector is busier because of all the the contracts that have been put in place. You know, as you mentioned, 20 percent of all hotel accommodation. Then there is, you know, what's perceived to be price gouging. And, and overall, and also if I was to put in, you know, the airport figures, there is a kind of an overall sense of, well, you've been looked after, you're doing OK But, you know, if you're an operator in a community where the only hotel has been, you know, contracted out to government, all of a sudden there is few stroke, no tourists where you are. So simple things like mitigation funds, we had sought those for affected businesses. Um, That's one example of where, you know, people who really need it, that there was support there from. Because at the end of the day, their businesses are struggling, stroke, failing, not through any fault of their own. It's true, I suppose, the contracting yeah. that has taken place in, in their but community. Elena, I mean, in fairness, um, the hoteliers who own those uh, properties are the ones who have signed the contracts with the state. Nobody put a gun to their head. So, you know, has the industry, is this not self-inflicted to some degree? But the decisions, I suppose, that are made by somebody who's going into contract. And you know what? There's all the reasons why people engage in contracts. You know, one is at a humanitarian level, it's the right thing to do. There's been such struggles around the availability of people, the cost of doing business, that sometimes it makes sense. It's the only option that's available to people to contract. Um, So there's a whole host of reasons. And I suppose one's place in the community is really, really important um, or that. But sometimes they have no choice in terms of it's the only option available to them because they can't financially support their business all year round. Um, They can't deal with the escalating costs. They don't have enough people on the ground to service the traditional business model. But that's not the fault of the other, I suppose, tourism and other retails and other elements of the community that are feeding into that. So, you know, I know it often comes up, well, look, you've been well paid to do it. But think about the other people outside of the hoteliers, you know, and the other, uh, I suppose, people who are contracting accommodation. It has a much, much broader base than that. Yeah, Barry, what's going on at the airports? I mean, they seem to be uh, booming and we're told that Dublin Airport is going to sort of hit its uh, ceiling uh, probably this year, 32 uh, million, which was kind of the record it's set pre-pandemic. And yes, uh, tourism numbers aren't at the same level that they were in 2019. Uh, Frankly, Kieran, that's because a lot of that is is outward tourism. It's it's, uh, the likes of me uh, flying off uh, to 
to catch a few rays down in the med, quite frankly. Um, and is that because you want to catch a bit of sun or is it because you, you perceive better value abroad? Um, it's partly the weather and yeah, I do definitely perceive a little bit better value abroad. Although I, I think that actually depends very much on your destination. Spain is is very cheap relative to here. Italy is is roughly similar, maybe slightly cheaper in some parts and slightly more expensive in others. So, I mean, yeah, the, if you are looking for a cheap sun holiday, there's, there's lots of options uh, in Southern Europe for that. Um, and if you're just simply concerned with the weather, which a lot of Irish people are, and particularly after the summer we've had, then there's a lot of options for that as well. I mean, it's still 20 degrees plus in, in, in Rome today and we're just getting over the, the, the effects of a storm. Um, so you can see the attraction for Irish people. There's also the fact that uh, within t- the last two and a half years, the man who is now Taoiseach, who was lecturing the rest of us, telling us, was, uh, telling us it was illegal and against the, the law to go abroad on our holidays. And I think that there's a little bit of a reaction to uh, those COVID curbs still going on amongst Irish people and they still feel that they have to get away uh, at, at, at every opportunity possible. Right. Just in case it comes back. Elena, you, you've sent this letter off to the Minister. Is she going to meet with you? The Department have reached out already to say that they are looking at putting a date um, in situ, you know, which is, it's good news. But, you know, the reality is that this is a necessity, you know, to go back to it, like 285,000 livelihoods depend on on tourism, the success of it. Like, I, I can't even say that we're in a position of where we're static I feel like we're no, we're no closer to 2026 in terms of recovery. Those pro-tourism policies are really, really important. Now, look, maybe all wasn't revealed in the context of, of the budget, but I suppose one week later, there's little that provides reassurance that we are going to meet that goal of recovery. And I suppose you mentioned it earlier on, um, we do have a very ambitious plan. Um, ITIC has uh, published a plan in terms ahead of, you know, the National Tourism Plan, again, which is another critical piece of you know tourism policy infrastructure that has been pushed out for a while we're very ambitious in terms of what we want to achieve but we do not feel that that ambition is being reflected in current um i suppose government policy in terms of the budget um and potentially we need a lot of um, assurance around how that's going to be incorporated into the overall because you know tourism has the potential to grow to a 15 billion sector by 2030 sustainably i may add it also has the potential to deliver 350,000 jobs and again so many of those jobs will be regional and the exchequer receipts will be in the region of 3.5 billion so there's every reason why we need to be getting back to where we were and we need to be you know laying the seeds for where we're going to go in terms of 2030 so the private sector can't do it on their own you know government can't do it on their own but somewhere in between there has to be a strong collaborative piece to really move forward it just feels like we're not even at a plateau you know and there's a frustration that's building up as a result of that you know Ireland is a very very vibrant tourism destination Elena when you get your meeting with Catherine Martin I I think we can agree that the 9% special VAT rate is gone Um, so when you get your meeting with Catherine Martin what's the one big ask you have of her um, to support the industry it's about pro-tourism policy it's not about any one particular ask. You've got the longer term pieces in terms of, you know, Ireland as a destination. We have a great opportunity around uh, green as well. Um, there's so many different elements within it in terms of unlocking, you know, the National Training Fund to make funds available. There is more immediate things like the mitigation fund um, that 
like I don't believe that VAT should. I mean, I don't know how anybody is happier to pay a larger tax, 13 and a half percent. So in one respect, you know, you might be getting it out. And I do applaud government in terms of the efforts that they went to, to put a whole suite of household measures in place. But it's been given out with one hand. And in the case of VAT, it's been taken back the other because at the end of the day, it's the consumer who who's paying it. So I think if you look at the rest of Europe, we're now an outlier. You know, we're we're up there in the in the top flight when it comes to what we're charging. Um, and I don't think that that's something that anybody should be comfortable with any day of the week. All right, we'll leave it there. Barry O'Halloran and Elena Fitzgerald-Kane, thank you for joining us. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Michael O'Keefe, Gavin Comsky, Barry O'Halloran and Elena Fitzgerald-Kane for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. And thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world.